This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. I have something that's a little different for you this week. I'm going to share with you some highlights of a recent conversation I had with news industry leaders about how everything is changing for journalists, for businesses, and for consumers of news. And I have some reflections to offer on that too. This conversation was part of the Milken Institute's annual global conference in Beverly Hills. I spoke with Barry Weiss, who left the New York Times to start one of the most successful politics substacks. And I had three leaders of major news outlets, Jeffrey Goldberg, who runs The Atlantic, Rashida Jones, the president of MSNBC, and Jim Vandehei, co-founder and CEO of Axios. You're probably familiar with Barry's critique of the New York Times, where she left under pressure over opinion content that was unpopular with certain newsroom employees. And you may be familiar with her critique of mainstream news outlets more broadly. She told me the New York Times has been captured. And when I asked who captured it, here's what she had to say. An ideological minority who does not believe in all the news that's fit to print, that believes in pushing a particular political agenda and looking askance at people whose curiosity tends in the wrong direction. And so stories that don't promote that narrative, and you all can decide what that is, right? The current thing changes day to day to day, and the list, right, of what's acceptable to the new ideologues grows by the day, right? So much so that someone like me was considered to of Attila the Hun inside the context of the New York Times. But if you look in the context of the country, it's risable, right? Of course, the viewpoint Barry has, which codes as conservative when you compare it to the media mainstream, but is obviously that the left of the center of the actual electorate has found a good home on Substack. I'm one of the people who operates in that space. Barry and I both used to work at the New York Times, and neither of us really needs to be there. But Substack, much as I love it, is not a full substitute for traditional media, even when you account for newsletters like Barry's that do some original reporting and that publish writing by a broad variety of people. We need major newspapers and magazines and websites and television channels covering a really broad set of subjects and that people trust, that tell them what they need to know, not just what they want to hear. And those outlets need to be trying to speak to people who don't share the frankly unusual ideology of the young, left-wing, college-educated, often Brooklyn-based journalists who have come to dominate the staffing at these major outlets. It was interesting to talk with Jeffrey, Jim, and Rashida about how they try to do that. The Atlantic, which Jeffrey Goldberg runs, aspires to be an ideologically broad publication, publishing writers who disagree with one another and reflecting the broad American conversation. But just how broad? Axios provides almost comically terse fact-based reporting and is making money doing it, and Jim Vandehei had some colorful thoughts on how they seek to appeal to readers who might be distrustful of the broader media. And at MSNBC, Rashida Jones runs a network that is openly ideological, especially in primetime, but that has to share a brand and an income statement and a lot of personnel with the other entities in the NBC News group, which is a bit of a balancing act. Here's how they all reacted to Barry's critique of the New York Times and its captors, starting with Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic. Does that sound fair to you, Jeffrey? I mean, I don't want to ask you to speak specifically to the, to the New York Times, where you, were, you did not overlap with, with Barry, but the, I think what Barry is describing is a phenomenon that a lot of people see in a lot of publications, and with your stated intention to be a bigger tent than others, it seems like something that, that you guys are, are seeking to push back on in certain ways. How, how is that going? Um, it doesn't make for a tension-free existence, um, but it's worth doing, and sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. The nature of a big tent is that it still has flaps, and there are going to be arguments about what goes inside the tent and what goes out the, outside the tent. Um, on the business proposition, I, I remember Barry once uh, uh, being quoted as, as saying that she thinks 
uh, her substack, her operation, uh, could be a true counterweight and competitor to the op-ed page of the New York Times. And I happen to believe that's true, precisely because of what she said. There's, there's, um, the, we haven't seen it yet, but the rebundling is coming. Sounds like a bad Hollywood. <laughs> the, 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 the rebundling is going to come, uh, precisely because of the reason she said, because nobody, we're all subscribed out. I mean, I can't subscribe to any more Substacks. It's just enough already. Um, I but hope you're I, subscribing to mine. What? I said, I hope you're subscribing to mine. Um, I'm going to get back to you on that. Okay. One, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm personally subscribing to yours. Um, I enjoy your work, though. I, Thank you. I appreciate it. <clears throat> I enjoy it very much. Yeah. Um, but I think that's what's coming. And I think if Barry, I mean, the difference between most Substack writers and Barry is that Barry's an entrepreneur. And, and, and she's a, a natural journalism leader in a kind of way. And so if people like Barry can figure out how to bundle that, um, that movement or that counter movement, however you want to call it, um, I think it's going to have weight because it certainly has verve right now. And it certainly has a combativeness that you don't see in places. And sometimes, you know, I mean, even my place can be afflicted by this, uh, a level of caution and worry about the Twitter mob and worry about this and worry about that. Barry is post worrying about the Twitter mob. That's, that's very clear. It, it, Jim, it seems to me like Axios has really tried to, to push against some of these workplace trends. Where, like, first of all, I never hear about drama inside Axios. Maybe you guys are just good at preventing leaks. I, I don't Maybe know. That's a, yeah. But it, and, all, and the products. They've had a little drama. I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm sure there's drama. And the product seems sort of aimed in a way that has fallen out of fashion a little bit in media and really trying to present an image of, of objectivity, of trying to appeal to a broader set of, uh, of, of consumers. Are, is, is that characterization correct? And if so, what are you doing internally that is making that possible without the kind of staff revolts that Barry is describing there? I mean, listen, I think every company has its drama, right? And journalists are self-indulgent, kind of high-maintenance, narcissistic, Neurotic to begin with. So like, and those, are the, those are the good qualities. It's destined, it's, any newsroom is destined to be a little bit of a shit show. But that said, if you think, I think the reason, there's a couple things. Like, one, when we talk to our reporters, we try to hire people who have like authentic subject matter expertise. And we say, cover it clinically. Like, there's enough people taking sides. There's great uh, commentary, uh, and a lot of it's represented on this stage today. Like, what we can do is help a confused, people, and everybody's so confused. People are just dying to understand what's going on and what is the context. Every piece of your life is changing more radically and more rapidly times 10 than at any point in the history of humanity, and it's leaving most people in the dust, and they're either disgusted or they're confused. So if any of us can help sort of illuminate these topics, make it accessible so that they can fundamentally have a better knowledge of what's happening in this country so that they can ultimately make better decisions, then we'll be successful. In terms of running a company, Again, like having done this twice, I'd say almost everything I've learned, I learned because I was so pathetically bad at it in the beginning that I've now learned how to hire a team that is low drama, high achieving, works well together, understands the mission, intolerant of nonsense. I stand on stage every quarter at our company meetings and I say, if I hear you talk about anybody behind the back, you're dead to me and you will not work at this company. Mainly because I don't want to work with that type of person. I want high achieving people who work well together, who are trying to get to the truth, aren't getting bogged down in the ideological disputes uh, that Barry's talking about. There's a time and place for it. I don't think it's 
it's in necessarily inside a newsrooms. And if you put those pieces together and you focus with real clarity, you can run a good company. But let's not, I, I, we tend to be a little self-indulgent in media. It's not any harder for me to run a media company than it is for anybody in this room to run whatever business you're in. It is a hard time. Every single aspect of your life now is political and you have, an, you have this edge uh, to a lot of people where sort of the edge on both sides can cause like great consternation and great turmoil inside of institutions, big or small, and just harder than ever to navigate it. So you've got to have that clarity of purpose and also that certainty of what your values are that aren't negotiable. The minute you negotiate those, you end up in situations like the New York Times ended up in. You, and, and once you do, you've, you've made your bet and you've made your lot. And in terms of bundling, maybe all this stuff gets bundled together. I'm not, I, I actually think this is a better time than ever for journalism. Look at you guys, look at, you say Barry, and I'm like, I know what that stands for, whether she's writing or other people are writing for her, and that's awesome. And now there's several people, yourself included, who are out there doing great journalism that's accessible to everyone. Yes, it's really confusing and you have to pick and choose, but whatever. We spent 15 years doing some of the dumbest things that any collective industry has ever done. <laughs> Starting with what you're talking about, we gave our shit away for free for 20 years. And then we're like, why don't we have a business model? <laughs> then Facebook pops up and they're like, you know how many companies started saying that my business model is to glue myself to the benevolence of Facebook or another company? In what industry would you do that? Who is funding these people? Like, how is that logical? You can't do that. You have to build a product that a consumer wants that you know you can monetize it. If you do that, you're gonna have a successful business. If you don't, you do what most media companies did. You go belly up. So what did everybody on this stage do? We watched everybody go belly up. We learned the right lessons. Now we're applying them. And now we're just at the beginning of really sensible, smart companies being built. Look at, uh, look at Puck looks like it's gonna be a business. Look at uh, the information looks like it's gonna be a business. Sounds like you're starting a real business. Like I like where things are headed. Rashida, an interesting thing for, for your business is that you're, you're in the news business and you're in the opinion business. There's a lot of people at MSNBC where if they're editorializing, that is literally their job. That is not something that has, that has come into a newsroom. But there's also a lot of people who are, in, who are not supposed to be. And then you, are, you share this tent with NBC News and CNBC with somewhat different missions about how to report news, I think quite different demographics in terms of the viewers and the, and the likely ideologies that they have. How do, how do you manage all of that under one roof, because you all, I mean, you're, you're all fundamentally trying to make money together. There are all sorts of shared resources that it makes a lot of sense that you're able to share, but then you can end up in some, in some brand conflicts there, right? Sure, so our focus has really been, how do we, how, how can we be the most transparent, both internally and externally with what our, our objectives are? And so some of that is just being clear on what our mission is for the program that you're watching. We group our hard news hours together, MSNBC reports, so the audience knows this is, the breaking news in the moment, reporter focus. Every anchor that is in that chair is a reporter first. And so they're focused on the what's happening right now. A lot of it's their own reporting that you'll see in the course of the show. You've, you've been a, a part of those programming, programs and see the difference. And then for our uh, shows that are focused more on perspective and analysis and the perspective of that host and, and, and that topic, we're very transparent about that as well. Everything still has the root of journalism because especially in a shared universe like ours where we have a lot of brands under one big umbrella and then under the MSNBC umbrella, we do different types of programming. You know, we're very, very clear in our audience. I think in the same way that a newspaper can have its front page and its op-ed section, you know, our focus is similar in that it's all journalism. It's all rooted in fact and information. 
and we and we program it differently uh, to the audience. Do people understand that? Because I, I've always found at newspapers that one one of, one of the problems is that a lot of readers don't really have a sense of what the difference is between an opinion column and a news and, and a news article. I mean, I also find when I write things, people don't even remember correctly where they were. They'll tell me, "Oh, I wrote, wrote, read your thing in the New York Times. I haven't I haven't written for the New York Times in I six years." I read it years. on Twitter. Right. Yeah. And so, as you you can be as clear as you want to be about that, that doesn't mean that the that the viewer will notice the disclaimer that you gave them over and over again in, in large type. Yeah, I mean, I think our audience is, is uh, the, the more we focus on this strategy, the audience is following along with us. And one of the, the uh, examples of that is during breaking news. We see huge spikes when there's a big story because the audience knows to come to us during the day for that type of programming. The audience knows to identify a specific perspective or a specific point of view with specific hosts in prime time. And so just like anything, it's going to take time to build that critical mass. But I, but I think for me, the biggest focus, and this speaks a little bit to what Jim talked about as far as the, the you know, internal culture, the clearer we are with our teams, the clearer, it will, the clearer the content will be on the screen for you. The co- more consistent we are with what you see on the screen, the more consistent the audience will know what to, uh, what to expect. We hear a lot of talk lately about misinformation, and certainly I can identify a lot of untrue things that a lot of people believe, starting with claims about the 2020 election having been stolen. That said, I don't think the media's effort to make itself into a gatekeeper for truth has really worked out. Where people believe things that are wrong, what can the media do about that? What's the responsibility and the capability of the media to actually correct or fix this? And what can we do so people will actually believe us when we try to tell them the truth? Jeffrey Goldberg started out by sharing his worries. The creation of um, alternate truth realities for different pockets of America. Um, I've been asked, and I'm sure everybody on this panel has been asked, for five or six years now, how do you reach the people who can't be reached? Sort of the question is asked and answered in the way it's formulated. (laughs) Um, There's a 25, 30, 35% of Americans who don't want to hear our COVID reporters, for instance, talk about why vaccines work. They don't want to hear it. When they hear it, they don't believe it. They're ideologically, almost theologically committed not to believe it. And the problem with that question that I get is that I don't know the answer. It's a problem of cognition. It's a problem of reality. It's a psychiatric problem. It's, uh, it's an enormous cultural problem. Uh, and, and I don't know. And that's going to be the thing that, you know, you combine these two things and, and you can see a democracy in trouble. Related to that, we have a, a reader question about the Disinformation Governance Board, which is this sort of strange... The Ministry of Truth, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, ...new entity within the Department of Homeland Security where it's not clear what, if anything, it, it is actually supposed to do. Barry, I'm, I'm wondering if you agree with Jeffrey's characterization there. Um, because I, I, I literally agree with the characterization. But I also think that focusing on that has led the media astray in, in certain ways. I think... I literally agree that people who you know, distrust the CDC or whatever, have a psychiatric problems? Uh, no, I, well, I took that to be a, a, a term of abuse. No, no, no I'm talking me. psychiatric. I mean, the, the, our friends in QAnon. Is, is, I'm not talking about that because that I can't yeah. solve for, nor do I want to go try. I th- um, but what I mean is the people who believe, well, it's the, the election is stolen. Let's just deal with that one, yeah. you know. Is that, I mean, I th- there's this sort of, there's this idea of like, you know, there is a very disproportionately on the right 
a willingness to believe in various on-their-face absurd conspiracy theories. And a lot of people in the media have been sort of trying to, like, grab people by the shoulders and yell at them over and over again that those things are not true. Um, and often, not always, the, the media is correct when they are saying that those things are not true. It doesn't seem to me like that has been very productive in terms of either informing people better uh, or improving the media's image. No, because often the people that are trying to grab people by the shirt lapels and tell them that they're crazy and that it isn't true also tried to tell us that Donald Trump conspired with Russia to steal the election, which turned out to basically not be true. Basically not be true, guys. Let's be honest. Do you know how many resources at a place like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal went into that story? I mean, there's a reason that people are skeptical of the legacy press. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. The way to repair it, I don't think, is by shaking people and say, you're so crazy that you don't trust whatever. The New York Times, the CDC, the we could go on and on and on, right? The way to do it is by just trying to do a better job, I think, by just trying to actually report about the world as it actually is. But a lot of the people, I think, who are, who are trying to wake people up about it themselves can't look in the mirror and apologize for things that they've gotten wrong that have created, or, or at least contributed to, let's say, the disintegration and the t- deterioration of trust. Now, as to the deeper point, why, you know, why are people turning to things like QAnon? Why are people turning to things like, you know, <laughs> neo-segregation is what's happening in some of these schools? You have to ask yourself why that? Well, we need Marion Williamson up there to, up here to answer that. I mean, there's a deep psychological, psychic force. What was it that she said in the 2016 debate? Really, I think it's about the death of religion. I think it's about the falling apart of our social bonds. There's, we need like rabbinic help to answer that deeper <laughs> question of why people are turning to it. I see Rabbi David Wolpe, maybe he can answer it afterward. But <laughs> as for the press, I think the thing to do is not to... Obviously, I I don't have the full answer to it, but not to continue to point fingers, but it's to admit when the press gets things wrong. That is very important to be able to rebuild trust. I mean, part of what Barry was saying resonates with me. Like, we need a little humility, right? There's things that we got wrong as an institution, and so you try to get it right. And so, like, there's two things that we do that are, I think, a little bit different. We have a blanket prohibition that we try to enforce with anyone who works at our company from popping off ideologically on Twitter or in public forums. And almost always our staff sticks to it. And the reason I say that we should do that is we want to try to earn the trust of the persuadables. Listen, QAnon, and like we've always had nut jobs in our, in our world and we just didn't obsess about them the way we do uh, right now. And you're not gonna persuade them, but there are persuadable people if you can do really high quality journalism without always having to put your finger uh, on the scale. If you do that, good things happen. The other is talking about it clinically. Like, look at, like, I'll, I'll use it as a good example. So Jonathan Swan is one of our political writers. He just won the White House Award for, for his work covering <coughs> Donald Trump. There was nothing hysterical about his coverage. He's never on Twitter saying, look at how stupid Trump is. Look at how dishonest Trump is. He just did terrific reporting that showed you exactly what was happening behind the scenes so you can make your own damn 
damn conclusion. I don't need him to go on Twitter and be like, you're so dumb if you don't see how dumb he is. <laughs> well, like, no wonder they think you're condescending. Stop doing that. But it's, but it's not just on Twitter. It's on Slack. It's inside news. It's news. everywhere. In, yeah. in ways that well, the, in you ways allow that the readers, it. Yeah. Unleash the beast, the beast will eat you. Right? <laughs> like, you have to tell your staff, like, what is appropriate behavior? This is not an ideological playground. So what's you're the signing rule up to that? work for a thing. Do you, Ours do you is, use Slack? Do you, is there a rule We use Slack not? all the time, but we're very clear about we don't want ideological fights. We don't want, uh, we don't want that to be the debate that's taking place. When we see it, we try to snuff it out. We hire fully grown adults, so this actually doesn't come up that often, and people are very respectful that we don't want people taking ideological positions uh, on, on, the, uh, on any social platform. And, and you know that, so you wouldn't sign up and work for us if you wanted to do that. We're just not a good place for you. The thing, though, is what, what you say there is out of fashion at a lot of publications. I, I would say very much including the New York Times and the Washington Post, where there has been, uh, the, uh, Wesley Lowry uh, refers to it as moral clarity, this effort to, to really to, to talk about the, the moral aspects of whatever it is that you're reporting on. And it, and it ends up fundamentally amounting to telling people how they should feel about the thing. And there's usually an argument that this is, this is not ideology. This is, some, you know, this is some value of fairness or whatever, but it is, it is ideology. With the morality, but be clear here, the morality that we all live with in big cities in, in the areas that we all live is just different than the morality and the values of maybe half or more of the country. And being aware of that and respectful of that doesn't mean we don't hold people account. There's some things that are so ludicrous and are so wrong that you need to point it out. I don't think you need to jump on top of a building and start pounding your chest to be able to get attention for that. Great journalism delivered effectively is a powerful, powerful weapon that we're blessed to possess. Do it responsibly, and I think good things ultimately flow from that. That's Axios CEO Jim Vandehei, who I was talking with just there. We had this conversation on May 3rd. That was the day after we got the leak of the draft opinion in the Dobbs case that will, if turned into an actual Supreme Court decision, overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and allow states to ban abortion. Subsequent to my talk with Jim and these other panelists, a memo came down to Axios employees explaining why journalists there are not allowed to participate in protests related to abortion policy. As you've heard from Jim's comments so far, this is a core value for Axios. Reporters there do not expound on their personal political opinions in public, and they're expected to refrain from it on Slack, email, or in other company settings as well, no matter how fashionable opinionation has become at other outlets. But two years ago, Axios had allowed employees to join the protests after the murder of George Floyd. So what's different about this time and about abortion? In that memo, Jim and his colleagues explained the difference in a way that's a little strange. They described the aftermath of Floyd's murder as a, quote, fleeting moment of unity, unquote, before the discussion shifted to specific policy ideas that became politically divisive. Now, this characterization of the initial George Floyd protests as not political is wrong. But interestingly, it's wrong in a way that I hear more often from people who want to let reporters speak their minds more, who will say that issue X isn't political because it's so important or because it's so obviously correct or because it's a matter of fundamental rights and who could disagree with it. If important issues or fundamental issues weren't political, then politics wouldn't matter very much. And it's fine to be political. It's just not usually fine for reporters to be political if they want to be trusted by people who don't share their politics. So one thing I hope might be learned from June 2020 is that an outpouring of response to a major news event that's tied to a key issue in our politics, such as policing, is going to be political, no matter the urge you might feel to say in the moment that it isn't. The truth of the matter is that news organizations have let their staff get much more publicly opinionated over the years on politics, and, and that's broadly been a mistake built on flimsy justifications for why this time is different. 
But there are a lot of people inside news organizations pushing these changes, saying that outlets should take sides, should be political, should project moral clarity. You're hearing that within organizations that have a tradition of either projecting neutrality or of accommodating a wide variety of viewpoints that their employees might disagree with. And that push is changing the editorial product. Jeffrey Goldberg and Barry Weiss and Jim all had some thoughts about that trend in newsrooms and how to address it. I'll give you an interesting story that I probably shouldn't tell, but uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, no, 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 I was having a conversation with a very young journalist uh, a little while ago already, and we were talking about how to thread, it wasn't about the Kevin Williams thing, but sort of issues around, you know, issues around ideology. I think it actually was an abortion question, come to think of it. Um, and um, we were talking about whether it's a, you know, how big is your big tent? How do you know when a story or an article or an argument is over the line, et cetera, et cetera? And I, and I, I really do believe, uh, and especially I've learned, and Jim has probably done the same thing, you learn the hard way, that talk to people all the time on your team, you know, and, and, and figure out where their heads are at and bring them to where you are, or sometimes they'll bring you to where they are. I mean, it's, it's fine. You can't exist in isolation from, from your team and, and its views. Um, and, and so I said, you know, these are, these are, this is why it's so much fun to work at a publication, because we actually get paid to sit around and argue <laughs> about the great issues of the day and how to cover them and, and how to tell stories and make narratives. And, and this person says, but what I don't understand is what happens if we can't come to a consensus? Who gets to decide what we do? And I looked at the person and said, I do. <laughs> I do. Like, like, it has to, like, and eventually, yeah. it's like, this is the job. And when you're in the seat, you're in the seat. Yeah. You know, and then it's this, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about up here is actually generational. It really is remarkable. People think a lot of this, uh, a lot of these issues split along race and gender and other kinds of lines. They do. But, but the generational shift is actually kind of profound. I, I, I disagree with something, I think, I slightly disagree with something I think Jim said about um, the, the West Lowry issue and how, or you, you brought it up actually, yeah. the issue of, of so many people in newsrooms wanting a radically different culture. I, I know Wes and like him, but I don't think that he represents a majority of what newsrooms actually think. I think that there are people, and I'll, I'll credit Barry with this, this is true, I think there are people who are scared to speak up about what we might consider old-fashioned journalism values, the stuff that Jim is talking about and, to his eminent credit, modeling within his own organization. Um, I think there are people who are scared and rather just not talk about it because they don't want to get called out by people 20 or 30 years younger than they are. I mean, these are true things. There's just... And, and, it, and it's... You know, you could take it... You could catastrophize this or you could find it really interesting. And I've chosen well, to find it really interesting and try to figure out a way to navigate through these issues, because these publications in some ways are microcosms of America. We can't figure out a way to coexist with inside our publications. How can we write about coexistence in America? But I also think there's a chance to hire people from different kinds of places, right? Absolutely. One of the places that are in Brooklyn, for Exactly. Right. No offense to Wesley, and I know one of your kids went there, but yeah. you don't need to hire all kids that went to whatever, Choate, Exeter, Wesleyan, Andover, Harvard, Yale. Guess what? They all largely think exactly the same way, and it is profoundly out of step, that worldview, with where most Americans are. I remember when I was at the Times, I was like the intellectual diversity person when we were interviewing people. And I interviewed a really lovely person, and her question to me was very simple. How do you edit pieces, op-eds, from people you disagree with, 
which is the job, by the way. <laughs> and I said, well, that, that's the job. And she said, I don't think I could do that. And I remember writing up the re- report about her saying, smart, great, could do a lot of things. She's not meant to be an op-ed editor. She doesn't believe in the job. Yeah. She was hired anyway. And <laughs> one of, but, and, 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 you, and, you know, it's like, oh, you can roll your eyes about it. I saw that happen over and over again, by the way. And one of the reasons is, of course, because the people who are doing the hiring are looking in the places that they have historically looked and 40 years ago produced someone with a very, very different ethos than they're producing now. So what would it look like if you're running a company like the New York Times or other places, you know, to hire someone from the middle of the country, to hire someone that didn't go to college, well, to hire someone that's a subject matter matter expertise. You don't need an Ivy League degree, degree to do what good journalism is, which is being curious, being chutzpahdik, interviewing people, talking to people, walking. I mean, this is not a sophisticated thing in a lot of ways. Well, this is interesting. I mean, because people always say personnel is policy about Washington. I think it's true for newsrooms, too. And, and, and Jim uh, alluded to how, you know, what you're hiring for toward the ethos that you're doing where you're trying to stay out of this stuff. What does it look like at, at brass tacks to select for that? Is it, you know, are you looking at a more diverse set of, of institutions of higher education if you're doing junior hires? What do you, what, what do you look for right. in, in a candidate to go along with your less ideological conception of what a publication is? Well, we all have our biases. Like, I bring the opposite bias to the table. Like, I had to go to the University of Wisconsin at Menasha Extension for two years to get into the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, where I had a 1.491 grade point average. Uh, so, like, and now I he's the, running Axios. This is my point. So I had, like, and I came from a small town and a religious family. And so, like, I have, I, I have probably the opposite bias. What I care about is, do you have a track record for being a really good reporter? Do you have subject matter expertise? Are you fearless? Are you curious? Like the attributes you just described are perfect. Like that's what you're looking for. And then you're looking for signs of like, are they too ideological? Like this is like, if you want to go on an ideological bender, we're not the place for you. So you're trying to sniff uh, that out. But if you look for those things, you can find them, right? It all is like, what are you trying to find that fits your culture? And there's a lot of those people. And I agree, like it does require people coming from different aspects of life. Like it's, I don't, most reporters, by the way, at least until the last, until the Trump era, aren't that ideological. And in fact, they're also insecure. They overcompensate and they make themselves more boring, right? Be, so like the, the, that usually wasn't the problem. And so the more, like the more you can find people who are curious, fearless, and not coming at it with a, with an agenda and just want to learn. Like, I think that's what makes probably all of us in, in, interesting, right? Or, or interested in this. To this day, we like to figure out new things, new ideas. We understand the world's changing. We're humble enough to realize we know some things well, and there's things we don't know anything about. I thought this conversation was interesting and revealing, but not entirely satisfying. Uh, and that's partly because I really think What's going on in newsrooms right now, it goes back to personnel. You just have staff in these organizations that want to do a style of reporting that is aimed at people like them and that is not going to be broadly appealing and broadly trusted by a lot of the public. And I think, you know, at Axios, you have seen a publication that really explicitly pushes back on it. And uh, even though Jim Vandehei 
understated this a little bit. I, th I think that's ultimately a matter of personnel. You have to hire the sorts of people who are prepared to do this. And you see this working better at certain other outlets that are more business-focused or more subject matter-focused. You get a staff of employees who are less political, who less see themselves as activists. But the problem is, uh, it, it's sort of similar to the problem that you have in the Biden administration, uh, where Biden has not been able to fully staff up with a set of people who share his vision of what Democratic Party politics should be. He's been overrun in certain cases by this more ideologically narrow set in the party that is very focused on these college-educated voters with a particularly progressive set of views in general and especially on social issues. You're seeing the same phenomenon in the newsrooms. And I think a lot of these other outlets, they really, they cannot change with the staffs that are there driving the direction that they've gone in. And, you know, in some cases, at the New York Times, for example, I don't love every editorial choice they've made, but the New York Times is a great business. And the New York Times can continue doing exactly what it's doing and make money and please a lot of readers, even if not everything they do will please me. So not, a, not every news outlet needs to follow the set of instructions that I have here. But you have a lot of other outlets that are not making money that are doing sort of replacement-level progressive takes, the Vox-style stuff, that you cannot charge for because every other outlet has the same stuff. Why pay for it when you can get it for free? And that just serves a market that's massively oversaturated uh, because you have this small subset of the country doing most of the writing, basically writing for itself. What they're looking for is really overserved, and then there are a lot of things that are underserved. So I think you know a lot of this is really a structural problem and one that's unpleasant for managers to deal with or even really talk about because it, it underlines a fundamental conflict between them and their staffs. And you can't put the paper out without a staff, um, even if the staff is a key part of the problem. So I think a lot of this is going to be really difficult to solve. I think some of it will be solved by a shakeout uh, in business models. You've seen over a decade of news outlets that have had excessively patient investors uh, coming in from the outside thinking, well, eventually this thing's going to make money, and it doesn't. So some of those business models will have to change, outlets will close, that sort of thing, which is obviously unpleasant for the people who work there. Um, but some of, some of this is going to be just a business reality. Um, but as we discussed in another portion of the panel that did not make it into the show, but you can go to the Milken Institute website and see the whole discussion, you have other areas of the news where it's just hard to make money at all right now doing the news that really needs to be covered. It's really hard to cover state capitals in a way that is informative and creates accountability uh, that has the appropriate level of staffing and that actually has a revenue model that works now that you can't finance a newspaper with classified ads. So there are parts of this problem that won't be fixed by a financial shakeout. and In fact, they'll be made worse. So I don't, I don't know that I have tremendous optimism, uh, but at least we had a useful conversation that uh, I think uh, shed some light on how people who are running these outlets data day are trying to do that. But let's leave that here. That was my discussion from the Milken Global Conference uh, at the beginning of May. My guests were Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, Rashida Jones, president of MSNBC, Jim Vandehei, the co-founder and CEO of Axios, and Barry Weiss, whose substack is called Common Sense. She also hosts the podcast Honestly. For more about this episode, including notes, uh, links, including to that video of the whole conversation, you can head to joshbarrow.com. You'll also find a transcript of this episode. Uh, finally, let me tell you about some other items you'll see on joshbarrow.com. And if you're not getting the very serious newsletter in your email inbox, you should really go there and sign up. It's free, although we, we encourage you to pay $6 a month or $60 a year, and then you get the upgraded version where you get the full four issues a week. You get uh, my uh, undying gratitude. You get to participate in the comments section. 
connections, including on podcasts like this one. Uh, this week, uh, I talked about Chuck Schumer and how incredibly frustrating I find a lot of the leadership choices that he has been making uh, trying to lead Senate Democrats. I wrote about Elon Musk uh, and the projections that he has for uh, f- for Twitter user growth, where 10% of the people in the whole world are going to be on Twitter. I don't think that's terribly likely to happen. I, I wrote about the falling stock market, why I'm not too worried about it. Uh, you know, the the Federal Reserve has been aggressively raising interest rates. It's supposed to do what's called tightening financial conditions. Some of that should be the a little bit of moderation in stock prices in the same way that when the Fed cut interest rates, that, that pushed stock prices up. So I, I think there's a lot of concern in the economy right now, but what's happening in the stock market looks pretty appropriate. And, and I also talked about the Instant Pot. Uh, I had a reader who wrote in asking, do I like to use the Instant Pot? And my answer is uh, yes, but only for a couple of specific things. And you can see in, in Wednesday's issue of the Mayonnaise Clinic, you can see my description of exactly when I think you should and should not use an instant pot. So that's a, it's a variety of topics. I cover a lot of things. I think it's all interesting. I hope you think it's all interesting. And if that sounds good to you, I think you should go check it out. I'd also like to hear from you. You can write us with questions, feedback, topic suggestions, guest suggestions, whatever you like. Reach me at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek makes this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. 